Could exactly. take the Nancy Pelosi investment strategy. <laughs> yeah, but then I'd have to get elected. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and who wants to be a politician? <laughs> and just like that, we're back again with the Mind the Growth podcast. As always, I am Chris Kinghorn. I'm Eric Hoffman. We're joined by a few special guests today. The FSO crew. You guys want to introduce yourselves? Sure. Sure. Jeff Sherman here. Scott O'Neill. John Faulkner. Awesome. <laughs> what does FSO stand for? Yeah. <laughs> Let's start there. Faulkner, Sherman, O'Neill. Oh super my super creative. We should have ordered you guys. <laughs> yeah. In that, in that order. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So uh, I think what we really want to start out with is a quick explanation of FSO, what you do, why, and we'll take it from there. Sure. Take it, Jeff. Sure. So we specialize in investing in apartment complexes. Um, we look throughout the southwestern United States and um, we raise money from investors, typically friends and family investors, to go alongside our money to purchase projects and, and then create passive income and profits for our investor base. Putting it pretty simply. Perfect. And then do you, can we just do a quick breakdown of, you know, what are your guys' roles how long have you been in the industry and uh, most importantly, kind of how FSO came to be? Yeah, we've been uh, doing deals together for a little over two, two years, two and a half years. Um, Jeff and I were introduced through a mutual buddy, Jeff Carpenter, who's with Simon CRE. And then Scotty and I randomly met at uh, breakfast club and we're just kind of talking shop. And Jeff at that time was, was traveling around the world. And I think, um, uh, he was back for you know Christmas break or something, and we kind of started talking about this idea of doing deals together. When he got back, he came back. Uh, Scotty came across a great deal, and uh, we were on our way to go check it out one afternoon. And I think Scotty randomly had a meeting with Jeff that morning, mm-hmm. uh, not through me as the introduction. And um, Scotty invited Jeff. We all went and checked that deal out and um, put it under contract that day. So we've been doing deals ever since. Progressively yep. bigger deals. Yeah, I always joke with, I bought a building with Jeff the first day I met him, literally 20 minutes after I met yeah, him. Yeah, it was a good so, blind date yeah. situation, <laughs> yeah. for sure. Um, but yeah, in terms of, I mean, experience, we've all you know, been in the real estate world, I think our entire adult careers. I mean, I've been in apartments since 2007, so I guess going on you know, 13, yeah. 14 years Full or so. Cycle. The couple, yeah, Yeah. up and down and back up. Um, So obviously we'll see where the down is. Um, And then, you know, you can talk about your background. Yeah, so I brokered small apartment complexes in LA for about 10 years. And then prices kind of jumped to the point where stuff didn't really make sense and came out to Phoenix and started syndicating and met these guys. And uh, the rest is kind of history. So you touched on one thing that I want to, maybe get into you said the prices in la didn't make sense at the time mm-hmm. do they make sense today and will they ever make sense um well it depends on how you look at things to me now the prices don't make a whole lot of sense at the moment and that's not to say you know i would say that there's there's deals to be had in any market um they just get harder to find mm-hmm. but you know we're underwriting stuff you know to a point where it doesn't make a whole lot of sense here in Phoenix anymore. Yeah. Um, that was going to be my second question. Much, when is Phoenix the new LA? 
Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's kind of already there. The pricing you know? is really evening out. Yeah. With. In fact, it's kind of on par with LA right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I'm a net seller of Phoenix right now. Um, I've just put a couple buildings on the market. We're going to be putting out a couple more. Um, not to say that we're not looking here, but like I said, it's just you know, taking just a much more disciplined approach and making sure that, you know, you don't make a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of just create a box of what works. And if it doesn't, then you don't do deals and naturally things sort of take care of themselves with respect to, you know, buying a deal or not buying a deal and where you end up. So kind of organic how it evolves. Right. And we're going to, we're going to touch on that in a little bit because we are curious of kind of how the, what the, you know, the product type when you guys originally started has changed over the years and what that kind of looks like now. But um, taking a quick step back of the business model here at FSO, are you guys syndicating? Have you thought about raising a fund? What does that look like for you? Yeah, we're, we're syndicating our deals. So each deal we're doing separately. Um, You know, we've kind of briefly touched on the idea of a fund, but uh, it's really pretty seamless for us to raise equity on a deal by deal basis. That way we're not sitting on anybody's capital for an extended amount of time. It's just seems like it's the most efficient way to put people's money out. So we're, we're pretty happy sticking with that strategy. So is the model that Scotty tweets something out and you get 500 people looking to jump into the fund? Yeah, it's the Twitter model. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. That's no, I mean, towards. it helps. I do that every time. Um, and we've gotten a good amount of you know new investors on the yeah. door that way um but we use an asset management platform called juniper square and so we've got a database of about 700 unique investors that are all accredited um and so yeah we launch a deal and it goes out there we fill it on a first come first serve basis and you know i would say usually they're full within you know, a week to maybe two weeks mm-hmm. somewhere in there so in today's world of real estate, can you give us an idea of the basic structure of the investment for an LP? And what I mean by that is what are you guys today guaranteeing, if anything, in terms of a return? And secondly, what I've, what I've never truly grasped myself in real estate investing, being an LP in a fund like yours or any others, is where do where do the tax benefits come in if you know for lps because i i know relatively well for gps but focus through that the the tax benefits um are really no different between the the gp and the lp depending on the lp's tax designation right everybody's getting the same amount of depreciation based on their percentage of equity that they invested in the deal um, what we've been doing on a lot of deals recently is cost segregation. So essentially an accelerated depreciation schedule, um, and it benefits everybody in the partnership. Um, those that are designated as a real estate professional, though, they can actually use that depreciation to offset regular income tax rates. So there's an even bigger incentive there. Um, but I think your, uh, the start of your question was, uh, just our, our deal structures, generally speaking, and, I think it's a pretty typical syndication model. Um, you know, we, we get a pref, uh, we give a pref to our investors, six, seven percent. It's pretty typical. Um, 65, 35, 65 to our GP. And, and has that gone down recently or um, is yeah. that pretty stable? The, the preferred return on some of our earlier deals, uh, when, you know, the cash flow allows, we were giving up to an 8% pref, but, you know, the market kind of dictates that. 
Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, at this point we were, we were doing 65, 35. We've, we've sort of got moved to 70, 30 as a way to sort of juice things up for the LPs. But I mean, the structure can be thought of, uh, if you're from a finance background, much more so as like a hedge fund model, very similar in nature to that. Yeah. Gotcha. So kind of pivoting a little bit, building types, because obviously you guys have progressed since you have started doing deals together. What is, what was an ideal building type that you would go after, you know, call it towards the origin of, of, of FSO versus today's day? Uh, what, what type of building is attractive to you guys now? I mean, I think we've just gotten bigger in terms of the buildings that we bought. I mean, the first building we bought was 13 units and, you know, last year we bought a hundred unit building, a 175 unit building, a 132 unit building. We're looking at a 200 unit building right now. So, I mean, the size is one of those items. Uh, we also, I think have oriented ourselves more towards purchasing value, like kind of in place cash flows mm-hmm. more so than your typical value add. Right. Um, I can kind of go into that if you want as to why, but we believe strongly that there's, um, more guys looking for value add than kind of your more turnkey real estate. And we think there's benefits to being in the turnkey space. Absolutely. Well, that, that kind of pivots to the next question of, um, in a perfect scenario, you know, where do you see FSO progressing over the next 10 years? Scotty, 10, <laughs> 10 years is a long time. I mean, let's call it five. Sure. Um, and kind of what we're looking for is deal structures amount in the fund. Are you looking to raise a huge fund to buy a ton of stuff? Are you looking to get out of Arizona or look into other markets? That's kind of what we're looking to understand. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, to touch on markets, we've looked at some other markets and, you know, in order to go to a new market, I just kind of always think about it as, the returns really have to justify you leaving your own backyard and kind of what you're comfortable with. And so far, you know, that situation hasn't arisen. So, you know, not to say that we wouldn't go to other markets. We certainly would. Um, we just haven't yet over the next five years. My guess is that we would, um, that we'll eventually find something that makes some sense or another market that we want to, you know, come into heavy. And um, I think for us, we all seem to really enjoy working together and uh, to keep doing deals and just keep, you know, growing that investor base, buying bigger projects, um, putting out more capital. Right now, we're kind of content to sit on our hands with the market being the way it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so we may do less deals next year, but um, I certainly don't think that that'll be the case, you know, for the next five years. Sure. And do you have a goal in terms of? assets under management so to speak do you want to get to a certain point our goal last year was to do 100 million in acquisitions Mm -hmm. and that's what we did we hit that like right on the head nice pretty great i think to date we have about 185 million dollars in assets under management um how many units does that calc out to it's about a little over 800 units total awesome yeah we haven't really set a goal as far as like how many units we want under management. Yeah, I think I just it's really don't like that because it's just my goal is to like make money for investors and, and more importantly, not lose money for investors. Right. If I can find a great deal and 
it gets us to 880 units and that's all I did that year. It's much better than getting to 1500 units and losing everybody money, obviously, but yeah, you um, can pigeonhole yourself into doing bad deals. I think that there's the problem. One of the biggest difficulties for type A people like myself is, you know, I came from a sales background. So you're like, okay, I want to get this much in commissions, this much in sales. Those are like really accreted to making you more successful. But in the investment business, you can be the victim of your own success in that creating those types of goal structures because you can't control the pricing of the real estate. Right. You can only control, you know, what, you know, if you're doing deals and how you operate the deals that you've purchased. So we're really focused on just looking for good deals. And I know that sounds kind of you know, like everybody says that, but smart though. One yeah. of one of our investors that's been in the business for forty some odd years and I was talking to him about where the market was at. And so he goes, you know, don't get caught up in doing a deal because you feel like you need to be doing something. He said, sometimes, sometimes the hardest work is to do nothing is to not work at all. Right. Um, and I mean, that's kind of certainly been true for the last few months. Well, let's take a look at your comments about the LA market and, you know, looking at the Phoenix market. Now, do you, is there, are there similarities be, between how the LA market was, you know, X amount of years ago when you wanted to leave versus how, you know, compared to what the, the current Phoenix is mar- market is looking like? Yeah. I mean, the biggest one is just, you know, the kind of the way that we look at everything is what's your spread over borrowed money. So in, in other words, you know, if I'm buying at a six cap and I'm borrowing money at 4%, I've got, you know, a 2% Delta there. Um, when I left LA, it had compressed to about 5% and you're borrowing money at four and three quarters or 5%. So generally on par, um, and Phoenix has, has kind of gotten there lately, you know, like we're starting to see stuff trade at three and a half caps, four caps, um, on 60s, 70s, 80s product. And that doesn't feel like a safe place to me when I'm borrowing money at three and a half, four percent. Sure. Um, so that's, I think, probably the biggest similarity that scares me. Um, so, yeah. I'm going to ask the last question in maybe a little bit of a different way. So um, with, with regards to your group and what you want it to eventually be, there's the comfortable hundred million to a billion of assets under management that serves everyone really well. Sure. Then you get into the mid size, maybe, you're, you're, I think, friendly with Keith Wasserman and Gelt and mm-hmm. that type of uh, group. I think they have like two, two and a half billion under yeah. under management, and then the huge guys. So within those tiers, do you have an idea of where you want to be? And then the second follow up, and anyone can answer, is is your goal when you purchase a building to purchase and then refinance after five, seven years, and then hold or sell and liquidate and turn around as a 1031 or something to that effect. So I think in terms of growth, like, sure. Yeah. I would love to to grow up and be more like Keith Wasserman when I grow up. Right. Um, do I know that well, like him? Maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe, I mean, maybe okay. So for FSO <laughs> to kind of grow into yeah. that gelt sort of mold. Um, but I mean, they've been doing it for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that was, you know, they came out to Phoenix and, 2008 and was just time great right yeah um so and then as far as um the second part of your question 
What was the second part of your question? Second part <laughs> is when you are looking at buildings, is the idea that you have in mind to purchase this building with you and the LPs and then maybe five to seven years refinance, buy them out and hold or sell and liquidate and 1031 into a new Well, project. the way, the way our structure is, we're never, we're never buying them out, right? They're in that deal. And so like, if we were to refinance, we return all of their capital. And basically what happens at that point is that preferred return would just go away. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a big believer in a recapitalization for an LP because I just think it creates a little bit of moral hazard. Um, you know, if you're, if you take something to market and you get the biggest price, that's the best way to give a return to the investor. But if you somehow are doing a recap, who knows, there's just too many questions that, you know, that could create, I think. Um, but you know, with respect to your, the first portion of your question, I, you know, I think speaking for the group, the best scenario for us is to buy a deal, add value, refinance and then hold it for the medium term to longer term um, after we've repatriated 100% of the capital and then the investors can enjoy the cash flow. We are selling some buildings this year, but a lot of those buildings are a little bit smaller and less efficient from a management standpoint to run. Um, if if any of those buildings that we owned were, you know, 100 units plus, we probably would be keeping them. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah. yeah. I think that Probably. the size of them really factored into our decision to sell these particular assets. <clears throat> and w w the reason I asked the first part of the question is, frankly, some people are more comfortable maybe in a, a smaller conglomerate where you can manage maybe 500 million and have a great life Sure. versus getting to the billions and tens of billions and then that creates different headaches and different roles. So I, I was more curious just where your minds are at if you're looking for more of that. Yeah, and I think a lot of those headaches probably happen, you know, when you're solely focused on, on that growth and making that happen as quickly as possible. And yeah. so, you know, I think maybe you get over your skis a little bit and don't do things in the most prudent fashion. Um, so, I mean, I think that we would all probably like to grow and just grow slow, right? You know, build build the machine the right way. I think we all kind of have the same perspective as far as wanting a balanced life too. Like, I, I don't think anybody, the three of us want to be billionaires. We want to yeah. live a, a good life and um, keep doing deals for a long time because we think it's fun, not necessarily with the end goal of, you know, having a G6, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, that's just not, that's not us. I enjoy the, you know, the balance of this type of work creates. Um, and I think when you start to, you know, reach for that goal a little bit too much, you can get into, get into trouble. So no, that absolutely makes sense. So we spent, we spent time talking to a variety of different, uh, a variety of different type of people, essentially, um, investment bankers, startup founders, um, chefs, et cetera. So really all across the board and something that is, always has been interested in, interesting to me is real estate. And obviously real estate to you guys is your job and it's your passion. Um, but why would an average investor put their money into real estate versus the, the money market? I mean, when you think of real estate, what do you see as the, as, as the advantage, the excitement? Why, why did you choose real estate over, you know, other, other um, vehicles for investment? I mean, real estate's the only business that I can think of maybe private equity, but Real estate is probably the only business where you're encouraged to trade on insider information, and that's what creates alpha 
as opposed to being in the public markets. So that's sort of our competitive advantage is having you can that. You take the Nancy Pelosi investment strategy. Then I'd have to get elected. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and who wants to be a politician? <laughs> no. Um, no, and the other ones, you know, the illiquidity of it, right? Um, you know, in a down market, it's probably not going to zero. It's not quite the roller coaster ride that the stock market is. Right. Um, and then it's much more tax efficient asset class. Um, you know, so you enjoy the benefits of, of keeping more of your money. Boom. Yeah. You get cash flow, you get appreciation, you get depreciation, and then you can refinance and not pay taxes on those gains. So I think it's pretty unique in that respect. So speaking of insider information, I think I have some inside information on you guys and I have a question about it. So recourse uh, versus non-recourse loans. When you start out, I understand that banks usually give you a recourse loan so they can come back on you and recoup whatever they need to if the deal goes bad. Explain the difference. Yeah, let's start there. And what the advantages are of I mean, the one non-recourse means that, you know, they essentially, if you lose a property and you lose money for that lender, they can't personally come after you for the money. The collateral itself is all they can get. So long as you're not a bad actor. Right. So they call those carve outs um, in non-recourse loans. Recourse is you're personally guaranteeing that loan. So if for whatever reason you give the keys back, and you lose the building and they can't recoup the 100% of the debt, they'll come after you personally. So um, in the world of apartments, recourse is typical in smaller loans. So if you get, I mean, particularly bank loans. So I would say, I would, what would you say, 10 million and under? Yeah. Probably yeah. Pretty, you, you'll see pretty typical. Um, but the bigger the deals get, the actually, which seems kind of counterintuitive, right. the the less often there's recourse, particularly in buying a stabilized building. If you do a development deal, there might be some recourse um, or completion guarantees on the construction. However, the bigger the deal, the um, higher likelihood that it's non-recourse. So it's obviously um, even to our advantage to do larger deals um, yeah. from a risk perspective. Well, and then I guess that kind of rolls into um, any sort of credentials or past performance that has to be in place. Does the bank usually look into that in order to to give you the non-recourse? Is that pretty standard? Or um, Yeah, I mean, the banks are going to be reviewing your financial state and making sure that you have a certain amount of liquidity to size to the loan amount. Um, I don't know exactly what that is. They want to know your track record, you know, they your past know, performance yeah. on certain deals. Obviously, you know, if, you know, I guess like if you were in another profession and th it was your first real estate deal, yeah, then they're not getting they're more they're well they're more apt to to want to give you a recourse loan for right. sure. And with the recourse loans themselves, is it the three of you that are personally guaranteeing it? Is it FSO and subsequently are the LPs on the hook for any of that no, as well? The LPs are not on the hook. Yeah. It's the three of us signing gotcha. on loan. We always just draw straws. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is a big one. This must be Scotty. <laughs> yeah. Your turn. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Mm. Um, okay, so shifting a little bit away from that, um, where do you guys see the market going in the next 24 months? Who has the crystal ball? I, th I think our strategy is always, you know, to... You kind of one foot in, one foot out. Um, 
you, you obviously want dry powder on on hand if there is a pullback um but inflation could just keep running like it has been so our our strategy is to just always evaluate each deal for what it is um if it doesn't underwrite pretty simply then it doesn't fit our box so you you said something funny having dry powder on hand i've been struggling with this with the capital markets lately (laughs) because everyone wants to buy the dip you know that yeah and it how do you hold yourself back from buying the dip so much that your dry powder goes away. If there's such a frothy market that you want to buy everything in sight or you get into this area that's just ripe for the taking, what 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 would your mindset be? Would you keep 20% on hand at all times or do you have something like that in mind? Uh, so you're saying basically at what point would the market have to dip before you fully utilize your exactly. dry powder? Yeah, you're out. It's a lot easier to know in real estate than I think in the equities markets because real estate doesn't, I I mean, at least in Phoenix, I've yet to see real estate sputter. It crashes. So you start looking at stuff when there's real blood in the streets, like foreclosures. No one wants to lend money. No one wants to give you money. And it's just the prices go through the floor. If we look at where the market is now with just the, the sheer amount of people that have moved here, is it more stabilized now than what it was, you know, call it eight to 10 years ago? Yeah, there's a much more of that potential for a crash. So I, th- I think that's the case. Um, I think that our economy in Phoenix generally is much more diversified towards more like technological and skilled employment. Whereas before it was like services jobs. Um, however, we can never seem to get the supply and demand down. So like we're currently building enough to actually make up for the lack of supply, but there will be a point, I think it's someday in the future where um, we'll, we'll outbuild ourselves. That's not any time in the next few years, but additionally, the way people are structuring value add deals. Um, so like buy building, fix it up and then sell it. They're getting bridge loans. And so imagine a world I mean, I, can you imagine a world where interest rates go up 1% over the next 12 months? I mean, I can. Yeah. Um, so when you have a loan maturity coming due and your interest rates have gone up, thus your takeout debt has become more expensive and you can't refi, what's to happen? So there could be distress caused by some of those situations outside of supply demand or like job um, jobs. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. So no, thanks. Thanks for running us through episodes. It's obviously great to learn about your guys' experiences. You know what you think about real estate, the markets, you know the state of where we're at. Um, but kind of touching on your guys' selves as, as individuals for a little bit. You know, outside of real estate, what, what do you guys enjoy doing? I think all three of us like to golf quite a bit. Scott sells a good place for that. Yeah. So uh, we uh, yeah. top three courses in Phoenix or Scottsdale go. Gotta you take that one. You're more of the golfer. Phoenix Country Club. Yeah. There every couple of Where Mr. Jeffrey's a member, and I'm an honorary member. You're definitely not honorary member. <laughs> um, Greyhawk, and then TPC Scottsdale. Okay. Mm-hmm. We've also recently taken up uh, the sport of pickleball, which has been fun for us to yeah. do together. It's a blast. It is. Yeah. I can't believe it's just now growing. 
Yeah. My girlfriend got me two paddles for Christmas uh, two years ago, and, and they're still in my closet. So I, I need oh, to go you gotta out come there. Out. Yeah, know, come I, out. I need with to get us, out man. there and yeah. play. You guys, well, you're going to kick my ass, so it'll be very embarrassing. No, uh, no, we're not. We're good. not good. It's we're just not good, good to have four people. It makes it more fun. I might yeah. have to turn it into a drinking event of some sort. Yeah, but I'll, uh, we like those too. That's, that was that's one of our other favorite hobbies. Yeah. I mean, we all like to we all like to exercise, and I mean. John's an avid biker. I mean, I'm a swimmer and do a lot of yoga. And Scotty, you know, was an athlete in college. And we love fine tequila. We do. Yeah, love fine that's, tequila. Yeah, we now do. you're talking my language. Yeah. Okay. Casa Dragones is is the the uh, the best tequila we've found. Oh the- boy, then you guys have to come over. <laughs> wow. All right. <laughs> so when you close a deal, yeah, what, what are you guys drinking? Casa Dragones, sipping tequila. Wow. <laughs> Okay, so I, I got some unique ones for you. So, There's quick backstory. Perfect. We, in my line of business, I do medical malpractice, and we run a firm with a few offices. But um, one of our partners, he's been collecting tequila for 30-plus years. Wow. He has, like, 750 bottles currently, just goes through them quite often. <laughs> but um, a stressful job. Yeah, it is a stressful job. So... <laughs> When we partnered up, because we merged with this group out of Orange County about eight, nine years ago, we all got into collecting tequila because of him. And so since then, we've gotten these super random extra añejos, which yeah. mm-hmm. is essentially the scotch of the tequila world. Yeah. And there's some really good stuff. So, I'll so have to- I'd be curious to know like what collecting tequila looked like a decade ago, because there weren't that many tequilas a decade ago. There's hundreds of well, them there, now. There but- were, but they just weren't known. Okay. So if you were in Mexico, if you toured through Jalisco, tequila, Mexico, wherever, uh, they, they were there. They just weren't commercialized. Quite yeah, yet. Interesting. But uh, there, there's a ton. I mean, there's a lot of small shops putting out really good stuff. You'll have to give us your top three. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, uh, that would be tough. (laughs) So (laughs) I really love Classe Azul. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The Añejo and Extra Añejo are incredible. I mean, the Reposado is the standard. It's the ceramic white and blue bottle you Mm -hmm. see pretty much everywhere. But the top tier ones are really incredible. Um, I'm not a huge fan of Patron, but they have their high-end extra añejo called Bordeos, which is actually really good. Um, I like that a lot. Those probably are my top two, but there's a lot of other small ones, some I can't even pronounce. Sure. Yeah. There's a ton. <laughs> have some unique. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I'm a big wine guy stuff. too. So. Yeah. I spent like, uh, what, a month in, in Bordeaux and yeah. just took wine courses. And so I got like a level one sommelier wow. deal. So I like that too. So were you drinking some DRC out there? Oh, yeah. I mean, we're <laughs> just drink- I mean, I, I like European wine, but I'm yeah. getting a lot into cabs these days. Yeah. Because I just didn't learn anything Napa about cabs over there. Yeah, particular? Napa cabs. Yeah. I mean, just everything Napa cab. There's nothing better in the U.S., so. So on, on your wine journey, I, mm-hmm. I, I did hear some rumors, and I think I actually follow your Instagram account. Oh, you do? Can you give us yeah, the Alberine Bros? Alberine Bros, exactly. <laughs> yeah, Wait, me and do you follow each other's wine accounts? Uh, oh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Eric's brother and I have one that's called Keep On Wining, so shout out to Keep On Wining. And oh, wow. Alberine Bros. <laughs> yeah, Alberine Bros, guys. I have um, 
about 60 followers. So we're like trending for sure. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I, I love- Wait till the compounding kicks. Uh, yeah, exactly. We're almost there. You're gonna um, have 10,000 yeah. after this. Yep. <laughs> yep. So I just, me and a buddy were in, traveling in Spain when I was doing my big travel. And um, we were just eating a lot of jamon and drinking a lot of Albarino. And we're like, there's no respect for the Albarino. Uh, wine in the States. So let's bring awareness to the community. So that's what we've been doing the last two years. There's maybe 15 posts, but yeah. Do you still, I know you said you're enjoying cab at the moment. Do you still Albarino? Oh, of course. I I had a post actually two weeks ago that I made. I obviously missed that. I missed that. I did. I'm not a hardcore fan. I saw it. I was like, oh, they're back. There's the bros. Um, No, one other thing that I wanted to kind of touch on is uh, I think all three of us are are involved in uh, giving back and kind of charity in other ways. Like, John, you can talk about your projects more going down to Mexico um, and building homes. Jeff just came down to Mexico with me uh, in October. We we go down there every year. We build houses uh, in a community called Agua Prieta, so just on the other side of the Douglas border. Um, It's a charity my family's been involved with for like 25 years, but it's it's just kind of like a grassroots thing that we've been doing. We started doing it you know, seven years ago, and and we've probably built like fifteen houses to date. That's um, amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. So Jeff got a taste of it uh, mm-hmm. last year, and uh, we'll get Scotty down there one of these times. But yeah, someday it's, soon. <laughs> it's it's fun to be able to give back in that way and really make such an impact in in one quick weekend trip. Really. And then uh, I serve on the board of a organization called resident relief foundation call back to our boy keith yeah keith and, and <laughs> uh, his partner damien started it about four or five years ago um and basically what it is is it's for people going through a one-time emergency where you know divorce job loss something like that um and we go and get their their tenant ledgers from the management company or ownership and make sure that you know this resident has been on on time payer been a good resident and then we'll grant um, usually it's somewhere between one and three months of rent and help them get back on their feet what makes it unique is that making sure that you know they're not a chronic late payer and then we actually put them through a financial education course um, that they're required to take before we will make that grant and so you know it's really to kind of ensure proactively that you're not going to run into the same issue again. And some of the, you know, thank you notes and letters that we get from people are just, you know, incredibly heart heartwarming. And, um, it's a really cool way to give back to the industry, you know, that we're in. Totally. I donated a, Appreciate a good that. chunk. I chatted with Keith briefly about that. I love the story and I love the effort. So yeah, good shout out. Great, great, uh, opportunity there. Yeah. So we're, kind of getting close to time to wrap up so i want to give i want to make sure there's enough time for each of you to at least put a few minutes of thought into this and and give us the the best answer you can so the name of the podcast is mind the growth and to us that means what it means to us but we'll start on whichever side or individually what i would love to understand is when you hear the word growth what does that mean to you when i hear the whole mind the growth together i just think uh Know, really being being mindful of of your journey really and and uh you know having balance and uh, always kind of be pushing yourself to um you know explore the time we have here 
yeah, kind of find what you're curious about or, or what scares you and, and lean into that and go explore it, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, growth for me is, you know, choosing things that make you uncomfortable and leaning into them and then finding the next thing that makes you uncomfortable and then leaning to that. And by the time, you know, you look back 10 years, all of a sudden, all these things that you weren't comfortable with, you're super comfortable with. And that's life, right? Is, you know, we're lifelong learners and lifelong growth folks. So I think um, it's nice to work with people that are on that same page as I am. Absolutely. Nice. I, I, I think you said something earlier that, I think really highlighted the mind, the growth feeling and it's in relation to real estate investing is the slow growth you were talking about and being mindful of not getting ahead of your skis and those sorts of things. To me, that's really what it means is growth can look different to a lot of different people, a lot of different industries, a lot of different companies. And when you, really pay attention to it, mind it, and are conscious of it. It's really important to not go too fast, but not too slow. Yeah. It's a nice middle ground to get to the point where, where you're really looking to achieve. Well, I think Jeff and I were talking one day, and Jeff was like, yeah, no, you push it until the wheels kind of start getting <laughs> yeah. shaky, and, and, then, you regroup, and then you pull it back yeah. a little bit, I and then... That figure out how you can uh, put some processes or you know, mm -hmm. bring some additional help on board that yep. can kind of stabilize things a bit and then push it again exactly. until the wheels get shaky I love again that and keep going back. One. Uh, one additional thing, which I forgot to ask earlier and feel free to answer or not, because it could be a controversial topic. Do you all employ any overseas workers to do cold calling or anything to that effect? No, not currently. Is that in your mind? Is that something you'd consider? I personally do for our business. And I've found that we, we have, I think four or five workers in the Philippines who do a lot of admin work, uh, phone calls, et cetera. A, because we can't find anyone to take a job yeah. here. <laughs> and yeah. B, they are actually great. They're hardworking. They really care about the job. And uh, we've found it to be a good opportunity. So, Yeah, um, I'm not against doing that. Yeah. Actually, you know what? We have hired people overseas through Fiverr. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. To do so like to do packages. like our packages for nice. our books. Yeah. So yeah, no, no um, issues about doing it. It's yeah. just um, haven't found the opportunity for sort of repetitive, like high volume. Sure. Items. I just think for, for us, a lot of this has been kind of like building an environment with people that you really enjoy mm -hmm. working with. Like we all hang out outside of work sure. a lot too. Um, and the people that work for us, you know, we genuinely, genuinely are involved with their families yeah, yeah. and their life outside of um, this place. And like personally to me, that's something that's like really fulfilling and satisfying. Yeah. And I think that it, um, we would lose some of that culture totally if we yeah. went really heavy into that. Yeah. And for me, you know, I would rather pay somebody more here and have that experience than, you know, have a couple extra bucks in my bank account. I would tend to totally agree. Do you have uh, a mindset in 2022 of bringing more people on into the ship? Yeah, we just did. In fact, we brought on um, a director of operations, uh, Remy. Um, she started really this week. Nice. Yeah. 
That's she's awesome. worked with us in the past. We know her really well. Um, she's really a friend as well. So it's a, it's a great fit for us. We're excited to bring her on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so important. Like you find the right people and then you hire them. You don't just hire people for the position because the turnover is really high. I mean, our other employee worked with me for five years before, you know, we started, um, this firm. So it just feels like everybody trusts each other and there's, you know, good relationships that, that we value. And I mean, for me, it's like, if, if you work for us, we want you to have a good lifestyle. We don't want you to be working too much because, you know, life's too short. Um, we, we also don't have an HR department. Yeah. <laughs> shout out, to, shout out to Nathan. He's down with COVID right now. Yeah. yeah. Hence the, the tequila and the, uh, the conference term. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Well, thanks very much guys. We, we appreciate your time where, you know, it was, it was a, very enjoyable to get to know you guys a little bit better and share FSO with the world. And, you know, we wish you all the best and can't wait to hear what happens in 2022 and 2023. Till the next awesome. golf round and a few shots of tequila. Yeah. Some pickleball. Yeah, Thanks exactly. for having us. Thanks, guys. Exactly. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Cheers, guys.